Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel and what a glorious thing it is to be recipients of your work in Christ. We are eager now to open the word and we pray for your help as we do so, that you would grant us to revel in a coming glory that is ours. We pray, Father, that you would Use your word to calibrate our minds and our thinking about this world and the coming world, that we would live rightly today, that we would cling to Christ, and that we would use our time wisely. We need your help in all of these things, and we, we pray expectantly for it because of your great kindness to us in Jesus. We pray these things in his name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. This morning we're going to be considering mainly verses 5 through 10, but I'd like to read 10 through the, I'm sorry, 5 through the end of the chapter. So as you're finding your place there, let's stand and we'll read. 2, 5 through 18. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned Him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under His feet. Now in subjecting everything to Him, He left nothing outside His control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him, but we see Him for, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of, the, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You may be seated. I can see for myself in, in many cases, I'm wondering how many of us 
are correcting our vision this morning. See, a lot of you have glasses on. I've got glasses on. How, how many of you are wearing contacts? If you're contacts and or glasses, raise your hand. Hi. Okay, that's a lot of us. Isn't that an odd thing? We used to see perfectly. Most of us anyway. I mean, mo- most of us were, were born with great vision. Like, no problem at all. It's wild if you think about it. You start out with perfect vision, most of us. As we get older, you just don't see quite like you used to. You get, it gets worse over time. And, and you, you have to start correcting it. I, I've grown nearsighted, and so I've begun wearing glasses when I drive and, and when I preach because I want to see your faces as, as, I, as I speak to you. Corrected vision is awesome because, in, in a sense, it's, it's almost like time travel. You're going back in time to when things were better. The author of Hebrews, it seems, like he, he's concerned about a, a spiritual nearsightedness. Most of us have a tendency toward spiritual nearsightedness. That is, we, we can only see what is near. That is, we can only see this life. We, we tend to lose sight of eternity. Now that, that's Again, that's similar to our physical side. That's not really the case, usually, when we begin to follow Christ. When we begin to follow Christ, we're all about eternity because we have on our minds what the Lord Jesus has bought for us and we want to be with Him, but as with our physical vision, our spiritual vision can start to suffer over time and we can become enamored with this life and even forget that there is another life awaiting. And if that goes uncorrected, if, if, if this life is all that we see, all, all that we're concerned with, it's a really dangerous situation because we'll begin to invest strictly in this worldly things, begin to look to this world only for ultimate fulfillment. We can adopt a you-only-live-once mindset. Now with this one, I'm not going to ask for a a show of hands, but, but I wonder how many of us, if we were being honest with ourselves, we might admit that we would characterize our lives today as just like boring or unfulfilling. But you, you, you just can't, you can't stand for that if, you're, if you only live once, right? Perhaps some of us would say of our lives today, it just wasn't supposed to turn out like this. Maybe it was the case that you thought you were going to be a doctor and you've ended up in retail. Or you were supposed to be a mother of four and that just that hasn't happened. Life hasn't turned out the way that you thought it was going to. And because of this spiritual nearsightedness, you have this very real danger then of looking to something temporal to make this life the be-all and end-all. In other words, you start to look for a Savior to make ultimate this life, to make ultimate what shouldn't be ultimate. The good news is that the, the, the gospel is the great corrector of spiritual nearsightedness. And the, the author of Hebrews starts to help us with this nearsighted correcting. 
He begins to introduce a theme here that's going to pop up over and over for the rest of, of the book. And, and that correction comes in the form of, of this truth that this world is not our destiny. It, it is not the realm of our ultimate fulfillment. We, we are largely downtrodden here. The next life is our destiny. The next life is the realm of our ultimate fulfillment. He said in the passage that we looked at last week, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. And so now he begins to, to remind us of some of that. We are waiting for a better land. And in this first part of a, of a two-part message, we're going to find a couple of keys to enduring this land as we await a better land. And, and those two, two keys are maintaining a vision for future glory and clinging to the one who gets us there. Maintaining a vision for future glory and clinging to the one who gets us there. Now, our first truth this morning is that the world to come is not subjected to angels, but to man. The world to come is not subjected to angels, but to man. Look with me again at verse 5. He writes, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. The world to come is, is the heavenly world. You'll remember that he used that word back in 1.6 when he talked about God bringing the firstborn into the world. He was referring to Jesus ascending to the right hand after his resurrection. It, it, it is this world to come that will be ours when Christ returns. In continuing with that earlier flow of thought, contrasting angels with Christ, he says, look, you don't want to cling to angels. They can't do anything for you as it pertains to getting to that world because that world isn't subjected to them. It's not subjected to angels. And so the natural question then is, well, to whom is it subjected? We'll look at verse 6. It has been testified somewhere, and he's talking about Psalm 8. It has been te testified somewhere, what is man? that you are mindful of Him. Or the Son of Man, that you care for Him. You made Him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned Him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under His feet. So the author, reading Psalm 8 in the context of salvation history, he understands that God has subjected the, the, the world to come to man, to, to us. In light of the fall of Genesis 3, the psalmist, and now the author of Hebrews, is asking the question, wow, what, what is man that you're mindful of him? And, and, and what is man that, that you would care for him, given that he rejected you back in Genesis 3? Verse 7 tells us in what sense God has cared for man. Ver, verse 7 contains two contrasting ideas. At the beginning, you made, you made him lower at the beginning, and, and you crowned him at the end. These are two different ideas. They're opposites. They're not synonyms. And so God first made man lower, and then he exalted him. For a little while, he made him lower than the angels, but then he crowned him with glory and honor. And in crowning him with glory and honor, he subjected all things to him. He put everything under his feet. Now, look at the next part of verse 2.8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. 
This is nothing more or less than the fulfillment of God's original plan from Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, when God made man in his image and appointed man to rule over all things as his representative. Now, of course, this subjection of all things to man, it takes place in the next life, not this one, as the author has already mentioned in verse 5. And we'll talk about why that is in the next moment why that takes place in the next life. But for now, just grasp this glorious destiny planned by God for His people. If we were to go back to Genesis 1-3 through and, and read those three chapters, we might feel a, a deep sense of loss. And that would be appropriate. The loss, of, the loss of Eden, paradise, the presence of God. It would be right to feel a sense of loss about that. But what we have to keep in mind, what we have to keep in mind all the time, all the time, is that Genesis 3 isn't the end of the story. The end of the story is Revelation 22. Or, or we, what we might say, we, it might be better to say that Revelation, is, Revelation 22 is the beginning of the end of the story. It describes what eternity will be. The paradise of Revelation 22 is better than the paradise of of Genesis 3. And Revelation 22 is what God has destined for His people. If you want to turn to to Revelation 22, I wouldn't fault you for it. I'm going to read from it right now. Revelation 22, 1-5. It reads this way. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Anybody that could use any healing this morning? Yeah? Amen, sister. Those leaves were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Now there's a ton about which to revel. But did you catch that last? They they will reign forever and ever. That's Genesis 1.26 and following. That's Psalm 8, 5, and that's Hebrews 2, 5, and 6. They will reign forever and ever. So let's think again. I I wonder how many of us this morning struggle with this whole, this, this is not how it's supposed to be. How many of us struggle with that kind of disillusionment with, with life? there is an ironic sense in which that's absolutely true. This is not how it's supposed to be. God does not intend for this fallen reality to be the final reality. The final reality will be better than anything that we could possibly imagine. And you and I must, we must, maintain a vision for that future reality. Setting our eyes on things above 
rather than setting our eyes on things below. There's so much in the New Testament to that end. Let me, let me give you just one passage to write down. I'm going to read it to you, but you can write it down and you can meditate on it later. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Do you hear how He wants us to maintain that vision for future glory, realizing that because we are in Christ, there is a very real sense in which our very existence is already there, even though we live here. And he's saying that when Christ returns, we will then fully, in every sense, be there with Him. The world to come has been subjected to you, believer, if, if, if you cling to Christ. There's more to say on that issue, so let's continue. Sin and death have prevented the present reign of mankind. Sin and death have prevented the present reign of mankind. You know, there's, there's an obvious objection that comes to mind when the author of Hebrews notes in the middle of verse 8, now in subjecting everything to Him, He left nothing outside of His control. The obvious objection is, well, it looks like there's all kinds of things outside of our control. In fact, when we look around at the world, it, it looks like mostly chaos. What world are you looking at, O author of Hebrews? What are you seeing? Well, look at, look at the last little part of verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. So, he acknowledges, just as we have a brief moment ago, that the subjection of all things to man is not a present reality. And the rest of the passage assumes what other parts of the Bible explicitly explain. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, pain and futility and death entered God's creation... It was still God's plan for man to rule his creation, but sin and death frustrated that present rule. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the glory and honor with which God would crown man, as mentioned in, in Psalm 8.5, that glory and honor, that crown, that's not realized in human history. Man in his natural state doesn't even want it. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 teaches that dead in his trespasses and sins, man is a slave to the devil, a slave to his own passions. He's a child of wrath. He doesn't even want the good things of God. But don't miss the word yet in Hebrews 2.8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Not yet. Adam and Eve, think about this, and we know this, but it's nice to picture these things. Adam and Eve had hardly begun to digest the forbidden fruit when God promised a solution to the predicament of sin and death. When sin and death entered the world, man's entering God, God's glory the, the, the instant sin and death entered the world, 
their entering God's glory became a not yet, not a not ever. It, it, it was never a not ever. It, it merely became a not yet. And so you and I must adopt two realities into our thinking. And the first of those is that this world is not my home. This world is not my home. Re- remember that the author of Hebrews, he's making the case that the world to come is subject to us. The world to come is subject to us in accordance with God's original plan, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, in accordance with Psalm 8, the world to come is subject to us. And the reason that we don't see it is because we're not there. The world that we're in now is a world that's subject to futility, Romans 8. Many, many problems arise when we, when we get all of that confused. Just just think what happens when we make the mistake of thinking of this world as our home. When we think of this world as as the primary realm of our ultimate fulfillment. Let me give you just a few few problems, a few short circuits that happen when we think wrongly. If, if If I think of this world as my home, I can only be disillusioned. I can only be disillusioned. Why? Because I was created wired and destined to rule over God's creation, but that can't happen here. So I can only be disillusioned with this life if I think of this world as my home. Another problem, if I think of this world as my home, I can only be unfulfilled. Why is that? Because that for which I was ultimately created will never come to fruition here. If I think of this world as my home, what everyone around me thinks of me will be of ultimate value to me. What everyone around me thinks of me will be of ultimate value to me. Why? Because they are all that is. Now, all of those things lead to other things. If I think of this world as my home, then there is no reason to follow Christ. Why would that be the case? Listen very carefully to this. If I think of this world as my home, there is no reason to follow Christ because Christ is not returning to make meaningful this fallen world. But He is returning to judge and replace it. And so if I think of this world as my home, I I need not follow the Christ that's returning. He's not the kind of Christ that I need or that I want. If I think of this world as as my home, if I think of this world as my home, I will inevitably then look for an alternative Savior. One that will help me earn the love of this world and one that will help me make meaningful this world. That is what's behind the search for an alternate Savior. It is is a wrong view about what this world even is. There are dastardly implications to thinking that this world is my home. I can't do that. I will turn away from the gospel and I will lose the world to come. It is crucial that I adopt this reality. This world is not my home. And I need to adopt a second reality. My home is in the world to come. My home is in the world to come. 
At present, he says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Glory awaits when I and all others who belong to God will be crowned with glory and honor. Doesn't happen in this world. It happens in the next world when Christ returns and brings in the new heavens and new earth. And so if my home is the world to come, I can endure anything. I can endure suffering, hatred, want, discouragement, you name it. Because my home is coming. If my home is in the world to come, I always have hope. No matter what happens in this life, I always have hope. If my home is in the world to come, I'm apt then to keep my eyes there and on the one who gets me there. Which brings us to the central issue of this section. So, so we, we began with this idea that the key to enduring this life is maintaining a vision for, for glory, that's the first thing, and clinging to the one who gets us there. So we've talked about the first, the world to come will be subject to me. Now let's consider the second, clinging to the one who, who gets me there. And, and so we come to this, 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 this question, how? How will the world to come be subject to me? The answer to that question is, is the next point in your notes. Christ has gone before us as the pioneer of our salvation. Christ has gone before us as the pioneer of our salvation. So we, we don't currently see all things subjected to man. What do we see? Verse 9, But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. Think about what he's saying here. What God has destined for man, we might say has been pre-realized in the ultimate man, Jesus. In Jesus' incarnation, He was lower than the angels, just like God said He was, he was going to do for man. And as the author noted in Hebrews 1.4, upon making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the majesty on high. He was crowned with glory and honor, just like God said He's going to do for mankind. In other words, we see Jesus having fulfilled God's plan for man. What God intended when He created man, that man would reign over all things as God's representative, Jesus has done. He endured this world and now reigns over all things at the right hand. Jesus has gone before us. But the author would have us to know that Jesus has gone before us for us. And that clause, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, that, that would have been startling in the historical context. Because death is how you lose a crown in the ancient Near East. It's not, not how you gain a crown. Typically, the biggest threat to a king in, in the ancient world was the treachery of those around him. You see this over and over just in the Old Testament biblical storyline. Others kill the king and take his place. Well, Jesus received a crown by death. Because of what His death accomplished. By the grace of God, He tasted death for everyone. Now let's be careful that we understand what He means by tasted. Taste here, it's not like what you do when you head over to Costco and, and, you, and, you, and you sample a few things. 
When, when he uses the word taste here, he means to experience in all of its fullness. Jesus faced the fullness of death. And He did this for or, or for the sake of everyone. Now, the, the context is going to make clear for, the, for us that when He says everyone, He means everyone without distinction, not everyone without exception. Because there's a particular group that Jesus' death frees from futility and from the fear of death. That particular group is his brothers in verses 11 and 12. The children given to him in verse 13. And the children of Abraham, verse 16. It's everyone without distinction. That is, it's Jews and Gentiles. Not just Jews. Not everyone without exception. That would be universal salvation. Because Jesus died for the sake of His people, He has gone ahead of them for them. Now look at verse 10. For it was fitting that He, meaning God, it was fitting that God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now let's think first of all about the word founder. The founder of their salvation. It bears, it bears the idea of one who leads. And, and one lexicon defines the word as a pioneer leader. And so Jesus is the pioneer leader of our salvation in that He established a way of salvation by going before us in it. He, he, he went first and leads us there. Sin and death entered the world. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God planned and promised that man would be crowned with glory and honor. Now, how, how would that happen? How would man be crowned with glory and honor when sin and death were in the way? Well, God sent His own Son to blaze a trail through sin and death via His own suffering for sin on the cross. And having blown a hole through sin and death and entering glory Himself, Jesus became the agent by which God would bring many sons to glory. Now, why would God want to do that? Because as the author writes here, all things are for God and all things are by God. Everything is about God. Everything is about God. And if, and if we think back to, to the very beginning... God is creating all things. He's creating all things for His glory. God is not going to allow sin and death to thwart His plan. And He's not going to watch the serpent deceive man and then just roll over. Oh well, would have been great. That's not, that's not the way God is. God is God. And He makes promises and He fulfills them. So that's why. That's why He did what He did. He sent His Son to blaze a trail through sin and death and lead many sons to glory. And so the author says here that it was fitting or it was appropriate to perfect this pioneer leader of salvation through suffering. And this is language derived from the priesthood. We saw back in Leviticus that, that a priest has the job of doing what is necessary to bring people near to God. And when he says that, that he, he, it was fitting to perfect him, what he means is it's fitting to prove him for this office or to qualify him for, for office. 
that, that word perfected or made perfect is, is going to be used several times in Hebrews. And, and it'll be clear as we continue in the book that, that what he has in view is, is, is the proving of Jesus' perfection and not Jesus arriving at perfection from a state of imperfection. And we can find this from many different cross-references throughout the New Testament that, that Jesus was always perfect. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He knew no sin. Not that Jesus was sinful and over time He, he, he got rid of His sin. 1 Peter 2.22 He committed no sin. Through suffering, He was proven worthy to serve the office of eternal high priest. Now, why was suffering the mechanism for proving Him? There could be many reasons for this, but but one reason is that suffering provides an atmosphere for uniquely intense temptation. And just a moment's personal reflection will prove this in your own experience. When you're sick, when you're hungry, when you're sleep deprived or otherwise suffering, it is much easier to sin, is it not? The temptation that, 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 that otherwise you might find perfectly resistible and become seemingly irresistible. And we ought to remember that when we find Jesus being tempted for 40 days in the wilderness without food for 40 days. Some of us find it difficult to go 40 minutes. Jesus went 40 days without food. And yet He passed through that ordeal unscathed morally. Without sin, the temptation on the cross would have been far worse because is all of those factors of suffering, sleep deprivation and hydration and, and, and intense hunger, intense physical agony. We don't need to go through all, all of the details. We, we, we all know the things that he suffered. Pe- people all around him suggesting to him just what a great idea it would be for him to quit the cross and thereby prove Himself. Just imagine the temptation to do that very thing under the influence of all this suffering. The temptation to do so must have been horrific. And yet, He came through that completely morally unscathed. Perfected. Proven worthy by suffering. Death itself was the great proof. Or or, or perhaps we might say, the, the end of death was the great proof. When Jesus rose from the dead, it indicated that He had defeated death. We'll speak about that much more in much more depth next week. Jesus died. He was raised. He now reigns at the right hand on high. He has pioneered the way to glory. And in that storyline of, of His life, of His securing salvation we see the trajectory of all humans who belong to Him. Because He has been tasked with bringing many sons to glory along the path that He forged. In Colossians 1.18, Paul calls Jesus the firstborn from the dead. 
meaning that Jesus is just the first of many who will die and rise on the last day. 1 Thessalonians 4 pictures that very thing. That when Jesus returns on the last day, all those who have died before will rise from the dead. And all who are alive at His coming will, will be gathered together with them to meet Him in the air. When Jesus returns, all who know Him will rise to meet Him in the air and will spend eternity with Him. He has gone before them for them. Consider again how, how all of this fits with the argument of the book so far. Jesus is the grand fulfillment of all prior revelation and He is the superior final revelation of God. He is the God-man King. That was chapter 1. And because that's the case, we must pay much closer attention to the good news about Him lest we drift away from it. That's chapter 2, verses 1-4. through four. Chapter 2, verses 5-18 through 18 gets into the content of that good news. God has always intended for man to rule over His creation. Sin and death haven't prevented the fullness of that reality. Ultimately, they have prevented the fullness of that reality in this life. But Christ, through His own death, resurrection, and exaltation, He has gone before us, defeating death, securing life, and reconciling us to God. He is currently reigning in glory as God intended for us. And so He is our pathway to fulfilling God's destiny for us. We must only endure this life trusting in Him until He comes to take us to glory. And so, in addition to maintaining a vision for glory, we must cling to Him. To, to Him who alone brings us there. Our pioneer Savior, Jesus. We, we, we ought not look to this world for ultimate fulfillment or look to lesser saviors to make this fallen world more tolerable, but we should look to Christ as the one who brings us through to our destiny. Now those who do that, those who, those who maintain a vision for glory and those who cling to Christ as the one who gets them there, they will find that altering the big picture of their life in such a way that it shapes their attitudes and daily actions. It, it, it will change what they do with their time and how they measure success and, and what they value and what they purpose. And I encourage you to begin in, in, in a few minutes. More importantly, later today and in into this week to evaluate your life in view of these things. To ask yourself the question, do I look like someone who is searching for ultimate meaning in this life? If so, what can I do to maintain a vision for future glory? What can I do to cling to Christ, the only one who gets me there? I'd suggest to you regarding that last question, what can I do to cling to Christ I'd suggest to you that we've seen some things in recent weeks, including paying close attention to the gospel last week and the previous week, the suggestion regarding just regularly comparing and contrasting Christ with the things that we have been loving, the things that we've been enjoying, the things that we've been fearing, and the things that have been causing us pain. Compare and contrast Christ to those things such that we're magnifying Him. That is a way to cling to Him. Now, as we close, I'd, I'd ask you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. 
Philippians 3. As we read the last bit of Philippians 3, it appears that Paul has been drinking the same water as the author of Hebrews. He has, in a sense, struck down the Christian life to two things. Pursuing Jesus here until I see Jesus there. Pursuing Jesus here until I see Jesus there, which is just the inverse of what we've been talking about this morning. Maintaining a vision for glory and clinging to the one who gets me there. I'm going to read an extended portion of this and see if you don't get that same feel. Beginning in Philippians 3.8. A a, a vision for glory clinging to the one who gets me there. Philippians 3.8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You hear that, right? Pursue Jesus here until I see Jesus there. A vision for the future, clinging to the one who gets me there. Philippians 3.12 Not that I have already obtained this or am already, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. And and there He's revealed again that He has this thing that we're talking about this morning. This this thing of catching a vision for the future. He he calls it the goal for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But, But all He's doing is maintaining a vision for glory and clinging to the Jesus that gets him there. Verse 16, Only let us hold true to what we we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've told you often, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from we, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. See, it, it seems like he's reading the same Bible as the author of Hebrews. He's maintaining, maintaining a vision for glory clinging to the one who gets him there, or pursuing Jesus here until I see Jesus there. That is is essentially how you endure this life. We should pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Maintain a vision for glory and cling to Christ. 
As we move into the rest of the passage next time, we will see, we will revel in more about what qualifies Jesus for this work and how He ministers to us as we wait for glory. In the coming minutes, let's consider how we can maintain that vision for glory and cling to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. We thank You for its clarity. We thank You for its repetition. As we've seen multiple apostles teaching essentially the same thing, which is so good for us because we need that repetition. Father, we pray for Your your hand on us as we wrestle with this world. We pray, Father, that You would grant us not to hate this world, that we, would, that we would live in it uprightly, that we would love the lost, and loving the lost, we would think rightly of this world, that it isn't our home, that we would seek to be faithful to You in it, doing what You've called us to do here, even as we, even as we look forward to eternity with You. Grant us, Father, to maintain that vision of glory. Grant us to cling to the Lord Jesus so that we will not Look for false saviors to make this place what it was never intended to be. Pray all this in Jesus' name.